Our Old Testament lesson this morning comes to us from Psalm 32. I'd invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to this psalm. You hear a lot of similarities in this psalm and Psalm 51. I think those are the two great confession psalms that we find given to us in Holy Scripture regarding the confession of sins and what the nature of true repentance looks like. And I think it's important to, to have this backdrop in mind because this is the very thing in which Paul will speak of in our sermon text this morning in 2 Corinthians. Psalm chapter 32 begins with this great and wonderful blessing. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent... My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Notice that consequence there of unconfessed sin. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And yet I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you, and I will teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad, be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy all you upright in heart. Now, if you'll turn with me in uh, your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7 for our New Testament reading and sermon text this morning. Second Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 2, and we'll actually uh, read the whole chapter from, chapter from verse 2 to verse 16. Here, Paul will situate and bring to a conclusion matters that he's been discussing now for seven chapters and use it as a means of contrasting what true repentance looks like from worldly repentance or worldly sorrow. Paul writes saying, this is make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I'm not saying this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I'm, I'm filled with comfort. In all of our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your 
zeal for me so that I rejoiced all the more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved unto repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffer no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in this, in this matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong. Rather, I wrote in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God, and therefore we are comforted. Besides our own comfort, we rejoiced, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. For whoever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. For just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proven true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. And so I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. This is God's holy word. Let us go before the Lord now and ask him to bless the reading and the preaching of it. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for your word as we consider the situation that Paul is writing uh, with respect to the Corinthian church. We ask that you would uh, cause us to see how this applies to our own situation in this day and age. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. What does a genuine work of the Spirit look like? I remember uh, having lunch with one of my friends in college, and I uh, had lunch with him and, and his family, and his mom uh, had just gotten home from the church that she worshipped at, and uh, she was talking to us about how uh, much she enjoyed her church, and said, you know, the, the Spirit's really at work, and um, you, could, you could really feel it in the music. You talk to other friends, they say, oh yeah, work of the Spirit told me wonderful things that He has in store for my life. These are perhaps well-meaning statements and perhaps statements that we hear quite often when we think of what the work of the Spirit consists in. But one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is how does the New Testament describe the principal work of the Spirit? What distinguishing features does the New Testament give as to what it is that the Spirit actually does? So one of the things that we have to do, because one of the things that we've seen is that Paul is talking about uh, encouraging the Corinthian church to test uh, 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 the Spirit from counterfeits. Not to say that you can't be moved uh, by um, the worship music, that's not my point. But the question is, we have to keep redirecting our focus to what it is that Scripture says in giving those principles so that we might know and recognize a true work of the Spirit from a false work. It's something that Jonathan Edwards even writes about uh, in uh, several of his writings in the midst of the First Great Awakening. What distinguishing features does the New Testament give? You know, if you were to go uh, to uh, the book bin in downtown Corvallis and you look at the spirituality section, what answers would you find on the bookshelves there? 
Does the principal work of the Spirit consist in euphoric experiences? Does it consist in mystical revelations, if we can put it rather tersely? What is it that the Spirit does? And how do we recognize a legitimate work of the Spirit from, from a sugar rush? How many of us would put grief towards the top of the list when we think about the work of the Spirit in our hearts? How many of us would actually have grief on that list at all? Yet, in a certain irony, a certain ironic twist, this is one of the things, one of the chief works of the Spirit is the Spirit has been given to convict us of our sin and our misery. But He's not here to grieve us, to leave us in the ditch, but to point us to the only true hope of salvation that we have. And this is what it is that Paul is getting at As he contrasts his own joy with Corinth's grief, he brings into focus the nature of the work of the Spirit as the Spirit has been given to work repentance in our hearts. You'll see that here when Paul talks about his own joy in verses 2 to 4, and again in verses 14 to 16. We'll take that together. And then we'll talk about Corinth's own grief, which Paul gives focus to in verses 5 to 13. So Paul's joy and Corinth's grief. There's a certain irony going on here that Paul would see Corinth as a means of comfort for him. If you think about the context of this whole letter, if anything, you would probably think that Corinth was the exact opposite of a Corinth and a balm to Paul's soul. Here's a church that has caused Paul such immense pain. And yet you see right here in verse, Paul, verse 4, Paul says that by you, I am, I am filled with so much comfort. And yet for seven chapters, we felt the tension in this particular situation that Paul is facing as he's addressing a very difficult situation that has befallen the life of this church. Corinth is on the edge of repudiating the gospel, abandoning the true work of the Spirit for counterfeit for those who boast in mystical experiences or in their own goodness and righteousness. And we're left wondering, we're left sitting on the edge of our seats, will Corinth, in fact, abandon the gospel? And for seven chapters, we've read of Paul's anguish over which path Corinth will choose, as he's not given us much of a hint as with which path they have, in fact, chosen. In fact, if you look at from chapter 2, verse 14, all the way up to chapter 7, verse 4, it kind of serves as a, as a long, we might say, rabbit trail. Uh, I don't know if you've ever sat in a sermon where a pastor kind of, uh, the preacher kind of goes off on, on what feels like a tangent for 10 or 15 minutes. You go, what does that have to do with the sermon? Well, well chapters 2 to 7 in some ways feels like that. It's, it's a large par- parenthetical statement. If, if you maybe um, uh, hold your, your finger there in, in chapter 7 and turn me back to chapter 2 real quick. I'll, I'll show you what I mean. Chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says this. He's writing about the troubles that he had, the anguish that he has. If you recall the situation, Paul has written a, a tear-stained letter. Um, to quote an old Johnny Cash song, he's written a tear-stained letter to Corinth. 
And he, he hasn't received word on what the response is. He's, he's called them out for some very serious problems that they've done. And so he says, look, when I came to Troas, uh, this is chapter 2, verse 12, to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I could not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went to Macedonia. For recall, Paul had sent Titus to figure out you know, what in the world is going on in Corinth, right? Paul, uh, you know, apparently forgot his cell phone, so he wasn't able to check his email while he's in the Mediterranean. So he actually has to receive word the old-fashioned way. So he send, he dispatches his buddy Titus to Corinth to figure out what it is that's going on, and then Titus shows up MIA for months. And so now Paul is left wondering, so he goes to Macedonia waiting to receive word from Titus. And now for five chapters, we haven't heard anything about the situation, but now... Again, notice verse 13. So he goes to Macedonia. Now chapter 7, verse 5. For when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had not rest, but we were afflicted at every turn. So it seems like this, this, the, the past four or five chapters has been one giant rabbit trail. So I couldn't find any rest in Macedonia. And now he goes off on what feels like a tangent about the work of the Spirit and how much greater it is than that of uh, the age of Moses. And how Christ has triumphed over the forces of darkness by justifying us, by sanctifying us, by redeeming our bodies, by giving the great hope of the resurrection of the body on the last day. The fact that he has constituted a new people, a new creation to serve as a new temple, the place where God will inhabit his people once and for all. It feels like a really glorious rabbit trail, but it feels like a rabbit trail nonetheless. But what we see here is this isn't, in fact, a rabbit trail. Paul has been laying the groundwork for advancing the next stage of his argument. Paul's big-ticket question is, how is it that Corinth will respond to his letter? Will the Spirit's work prove true in the hearts of Corinth? Will they walk away all together? Will Corinth respond to Paul's plea to be reconciled? Well, here finally, after being left in suspense for several chapters, we were given a resolution to this. Turns out Titus had visited Corinth. Now Titus has come to Macedonia bringing good news to Paul. Corinth has repented. Corinth has finally responded positively to Paul's severe letter. That's good news which results in God or in Paul praising the God who now comforts the downcast. Paul has lost sleep over this particular situation for months. Will Corinth respond positively to the work of the Spirit through the ministry of the new covenant? And now Paul has received word that they have responded positively. And so now there's a double comfort that's given first in the arrival of Titus. Hey, here's a guy who's been missing in action for several months. Finally shows up in Macedonia. What a comfort that is. But then Titus also brings with him good news. Guess what? Corinth has responded with tears. With real grief over the harm and the sorrow that they have caused Pastor Paul. Paul has in fact won them over by his painful letter. But now Paul begins to use this as a teaching moment to speak of the work of the Spirit in their hearts. If you notice, again, this is the whole focus of what Paul's talking about in this whole letter. What does the Spirit's work look like? 
Does it involve, does it consist itself in material riches in this life, or does it consist in a heartfelt repentance? Paul keeps coming back to this over and over and over again. I remember uh, once when I was in, uh, I think I was about in fifth or sixth grade, something like that. Uh, one of my best friends lived down the street, and his name was Nick. Uh, Nick Spinelli, I actually talked to him yesterday. And uh, I asked my mom if I could go down the street to play with Nick. And uh, the, the power was out. It was, it was Florida, there was a thunderstorm, knocked out the power for, for a couple hours. And my mom said, well, now that the power's out, now that the phone's out, all that stuff, can't go over to Nick's till the power comes back on. I said, well, but mom... Nick lives right down the street. It's just a few blocks away. My mom kept saying, no, not until the power comes back on. And so about every 15, 20 minutes, I kept asking my mom, mom, can I go over now? Even though the power hadn't turned back on. And finally, my mom said, if you ask one more time, you cannot go to Nick's house. You're going to be grounded. So I wait 15 minutes. And I ask my mom, hey, mom, can I go over to Nick's house? And just as I ask the question, boom, the lights come back on. And I go, oh, that, how wonderful. But my mom said, "Uh uh-uh, you're grounded. Why? She said, if you ask one more time, my mom's not a liar. She keeps her word. I was grounded. Guess what? I was not happy. But mom, the power's back on. Doesn't matter. She says, you disobeyed me. Now I was very upset. You want to know why I was upset? It's not upset because I disobeyed my mother. I was upset because I wasn't getting my own way. I was upset because I couldn't go to my buddy Nick's house. And there are many reasons why we can be upset at particular situations. Many reasons why we can grieve, I think, when it comes to sin. And this is the type of grief Paul has in view here. Not necessarily, it's not the, the grief or mourning the loss of a loved one. This is the grief over uh, consequences, actions of your sin. There are two different ways in which we can respond to our sin. One, we can be upset because we have sinned, that we have offended a holy God. Or, we can be upset because we got caught we can be upset uh, because uh, we actually now have to suffer the consequences of our own actions. There's two very different types of response to grief, and yet this is the type of grief that Paul contrasts here with that of what he calls good grief. You know, you think of, I think of Charlie Brown over here, good grief. You have good grief, and then you have bad grief. You have uh, godly sorrow, as he calls it, and you have worldly sorrow. He talks about this worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow leads to death. What is worldly sorrow? It's a sorrow that leads to self-pity. It becomes introspective. Look at all that I have lost because of my own sin. Problem with that form of sorrow is it's still very much focused on yourself. It's a very selfish form of grieving. You're upset not because what you did was wrong, but you're upset because you got caught. And now you have to suffer the punishment. See, any type of sorrow that still keeps yourself at the center of the universe is a type of worldly sorrow. It's the type of sorrow where you see the, the, the kid in the candy store or in the grocery store when he asks his mom for a lollipop and she says no, and the kid has a meltdown in the middle of the store. They're not having a meltdown because they've disobeyed their mother. They're having a meltdown because they are selfish. and They're not getting their own way. The temper tantrum. Remember Cain. God was displeased with Cain's offering. The Lord says, remember your own heart. Examine your heart. The Lord gave Cain space to make amends, but Cain simply, what does he do? He simply redirects his anger to somebody else. What about my brother? What about Abel? 
come you accepted his over mine? Remember Esau. Here's a man who sells his inheritance. He sells his birthright for a cup of soup. He regrets it, certainly, but he never amends his ways. It's a worldly type of sorrow. Here's a man who recognizes he has to suffer the consequences for his actions, but he doesn't sorrow for the right reasons. See, worldly sorrow keeps your eyes on anyone or anything but your Savior. Keeps you from real repentance. And such type of sorrow leads to death. And so Paul says that there's, there's worldly sorrow, but then there's a real godly sorrow. There's a real godly repentance. And what Paul's been getting at is that godly sorrow is something that the Spirit actually works in our hearts. It turns you away from sin. It turns you away from your own selfishness, and it redirects your eyes to Christ. It is a sorrow that leads to salvation. It is a grief that does not wallow in self-pity, but it leads to salvation without regret, as Paul says here. In other words, the Spirit works in our hearts to produce repentance, to produce sorrow, but He doesn't leave us in the ditch. He doesn't leave us wallowing in self-pity. That's not what the purpose of true repentance is. It's a step along the way. The Spirit works in our hearts to cause us to see how we have offended God so that we might turn to God and be cleansed from our sins. This is why Paul took that long detour in chapter 3 talking about the work of the Spirit in our hearts. That this is something far better than even Moses was able to give under the Old Covenant. The work of the Spirit, Paul's point throughout this whole letter, that produces a godly repentance. And this is something far better than earthly riches. It's something that's far better than mystical visions. And it is something far better than fleeting pleasures. True godly grief elicits a wholehearted repentance. Paul describes the ways in which this wholehearted repentance is meted out in the life of Corinth. Here, Paul gives, uh, describes their repentance using seven phrases, seven terms. And, and uh, that, that idea of seven, that idea in, in, uh, in Hebraic thought of, of seven meaning completeness or wholeness. Look how earnest and eager. Look how indignant you were at your own sin. Look at the fear, the longing, the zeal, the punishment. Apparently, whatever the situation, Paul has been relatively discreet regarding the nature of this severe letter, but the main principle stands true. That Paul's letter, severe as it was, calling them to repentance, has produced its desired effect. Praise be to God. Corinth has responded properly to everything Paul hoped that they would respond to. Where he now says at every point, every single point, you have proven yourselves innocent in this matter. And so above all, we see that this godly grief produces, verse 10, a repentance that leads not to self-pity, but a repentance that leads to salvation. Paul's painful letter was designed to elicit such an effect, and it accomplished its purpose. 
In other words, Paul is saying, I wrote these harsh words not to harm you, but to rouse you from your delusion. Corinth, having read the letter, responded properly and biblically. I think this passage helps us recalibrate our understanding of the Spirit's work in at least two ways. The first is this, God uses means to elicit repentance. Paul had to write a painful letter to the church of Corinth that he did not want to write. But the purpose for this painful letter was for the holiness of the church. That the church would see its errors and turn from its sinful ways and turn to the God who abundantly pardons and to the God who abundantly comforts. Paul's word, Paul's letter, was a painful admonition. It was a painful rebuke. So it reminds us the nature of Christian discipleship. Christian discipleship does not consist in telling feel-good stories. But in instructing us of the path of holiness. And this means at times pointing out sin. And directing others to the, lo- to, to the road that leads away from the path to destruction. We talk about discipleship, but there is no discipleship without discipline. God uses means to make us holy. God uses His Word to correct us, to make us holy. And so discipline can be painful for a time. Preaching is going to sting at times. Not that the purpose of preaching from the pulpit is to, to call out each and every way, bing, bang, boom, you know, uh, from the pulpit, uh, but, but just the, the general preaching of the Word. What does the Bible say about X topic and our proper response? Should, should, we should feel the pressure. If we, if we never feel the pressure, we need to reconsider how carefully we're paying attention. Because the Spirit has been given to prod our hearts, to spur us on to holiness. And it's going to hurt. Discipline is painful for a time, Hebrews says, quoting Proverbs. But it is for our good, and it shows us that we are indeed sons. In other words, God cares about what we do with and in our lives. And so he seeks us, even as he's adopted us, into, adopted us into his family to make his children, he now says these are the rules of the household of God. Walk in them. And so that's, our, I think, the first main principle we can derive from this passage. God uses means to make us holy. Sometimes it includes a verbal warning or a written warning. A rebuke to friends. Turn from your ways. Second application I think we have here is this really highlights the Spirit's work. Uh, I think in modern evangelicalism, there's the expectation for us to always have these so-called spiritual highs. But here, Paul reminds us that the spiritual lows come first. First, the suffering, and then the glory. You know, we read those imperatives in Scripture, the commands that God has given us regarding the way in which we are to live our lives. And it makes us feel uncomfortable. 
Sometimes we just want to chalk it up and go, oh, that's just legalism. We try to pursue happier things. Yet the imperatives of Scripture are very important. But the discomfort that we feel when reading the imperatives of Scripture, maybe that discomfort is not legalism. Maybe the discomfort is the Spirit reminding us, this is where you've strayed from the path. It's time to course correct. Jesus Himself said the night before He was crucified that He was going to give out the Spirit, pour out the Spirit and give it to His church, and the, the Spirit was given to convict us of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. To expose our sin to us. Not that we would be led to wallow in self-pity, but that in seeing our sin, we would see the greatness of our Savior and so turn to Christ, seeking pardon and also the Spirit's aid to put indwelling sin to death. That we might walk the path of righteousness as we have been commanded to do. You see, when the Spirit calls us to repent, we're not just simply talking about a generic repentance. I think we all feel content leaving the, 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 the language of repentance in kind of the generic abstract. And yet, Scripture calls us to, partic- of re- to repent of particular sins particularly. And that's where the rubber meets the road. And that's where it could be very painful. And that's why week in and week out here in the worship, we have a time of confession of sin, a time of the reading of the law, but it's always followed up by an assurance of pardon. Because we are here to have our hearts redirected, not to wallow in self-pity, but to be reminded that there is forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's one of my favorite hymns, and unfortunately it's not uh, in in our present hymnal, it's in our new Psalter hymnal, but it's an old John Newton hymn. I think many of us are familiar with uh, John Newton's uh, great hymn, Amazing Grace. Um, But there's another hymn that he wrote that I think really highlights the Spirit's work as it's described here in 2 Corinthians. The name of the hymn, I'd encourage you to look it up when you get home. You can find it online. Uh, It's called I Asked the Lord. And I'm just going to, I'm going to read this hymn. And I'd like you to, to just listen for a few moments. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. I ask that I might more of His salvation know, that I might seek His face more earnestly. And it was He who taught me to pray this. And He, you know, I trust His answered prayer, but He has done it in such a way that's almost driven me to despair. How many of us... Uh, are like that when we pray, Lord, I, I want to know your love more fully. And we feel like in response to that prayer, all we get thrown back in our face, we're reminded of our sin. And this is the situation that Newton finds himself in. And so he says, I hope that in some favored hour, all at once, the Lord would answer my request. That by his love's constraining power, that he would subdue my own sins, that he would give me rest. Instead of all this, He made me to feel the hidden evils of my very heart. And He let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part, and yet more with His own hand He seemed intent to aggravate my woe. He crossed all the fair designs I schemed. He humbled my heart. He made me low. In other words, the more I pray for God's love to be shown to me, the more I get to see, the more I end up seeing my sin, the more low I end up being brought. And, and Newton is saying this feels like the exact opposite of an answer to my prayer. 
And so he goes on, and Newton says, Lord, why is this I trembling cried? Will you pursue this, your worm, to death? The Lord replied, it is in this way that I have answered prayer for grace and faith. You see, I have employed these inward trials from self and from pride to set thee free. To break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thine all in me. In other words, the purpose of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit He's given to expose us of our sins, to rid us of our own self-sufficiency, to wean us off of our own sense of independence and autonomy, to recognize that we have no course of salvation except in Christ alone. Is not Christ a little bit plus my own moral do-goodery? That merits God's favor. It is Christ and Christ alone. And it is only by recognizing the depth and heinousness of our sin that we will come to love the cross all the more. That is the purpose of the Spirit. As I said before, the Spirit is like the floodlight at a football arena game. Not so that you look at the spotlight, but that the spotlight, the floodlight, would direct your attention to where it should be the playing field. And so the work of the Spirit is to direct us away from the Spirit and to Christ and what He has accomplished for us by His death and resurrection from the dead. It is only here that we will have true peace and lasting joy. It is only through a true godly sorrow that we will find true and lasting joy. So I encourage you that as you hear the reading of the law week in and week out and you feel the conviction, as you hear the preaching of the Word week in and week out and you feel, your, you, you, you feel convicted, don't try to just brush it off. But really examine your hearts. Don't let it drive you to self-pitying despair, but let it drive you to a real godly sorrow that you can find and see the greatness and grandeur of a God who loves sinners and has made a way of escape through faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank You for Your Word. We ask that You would work a deep work of repentance in our hearts, that You would reform Your church, that we would see the law and not use it to hold it up as a mirror to those sitting at the end of the pew beside us, but that we would hold it up to our own hearts and see that we, we ourselves, are in need of a Savior. Teach us to trust You more fully, to turn from our sin. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.